So welcome to the first of our series of evidence-based podcasts in paediatric surgery. Our topic today is on esophageal atresia, and I'm delighted to have today with us Mr. Joe Curry, who is a consultant neonatal and paediatric surgeon at Great Ormond Street Hospital for Children. Mr. Curry has been a consultant surgeon here for over 15 years and has a high degree in medical education and has a special interest in esophageal atresia surgery, dysmotility, as well as complex lower GI management. So welcome, Mr. Curry. Thank you. Um, so we're going to go through just a series of topics and we're going to start from the antenatal counselling and management. Um, so let's just assume that you're called uh, to the antenatal fetal medicine clinic and a couple has had their 20-week anomaly scan and there is a suspicion of esophageal atresia. So at this stage, what further information would you like and what would you say to the parents? So it's important to understand whether there are other anomalies in the infant which would raise the suspicion even more about whether esophageal atresia is present. So I'd want to know about whether anything else in the vector sequence was identified. So was the heart structurally normal, were the kidneys normal? Um, what was the fluid glycol volume, although that might be difficult to tell on a very early scan, and whether the stomach bubble is um, present or absent. Um, one of the difficulties, I think, is that we're often called to such antenatal counselling sessions knowing that just in the presence of polyhydramnios, for example, that there are many, many other causes for that um, that are not uh, esophageal atresia, and so one would want to know from the obstetrician whether there are any other risk factors as to why the um, pregnancy might be complicated by polyhydramnios. But we know that even in the presence of polyhydramnios and an absent stomach bubble, that only about two-thirds of those children will actually go on to have esophageal atresia. Okay, and is there any specific management at that stage you might advise if you felt strongly this was esophageal atresia? Um, again, it, it remains at 20 weeks the option for the parents to consider continuing with the pregnancy. I guess in the, in the context of an isolated esophageal atresia, most families would choose to continue with the pregnancy. It's therefore unlikely to have a significant um, impact through the pregnancy, other than the development of polyhydramnios, which, as you know, then leads to often um, earlier pregnancy. And many children with esophageal atresia tend to be born a little bit earlier, around the 34 to 36 weeks gestation, often precipitated by the presence of polyhydramnios. Okay, so let's just assume that does take place and this infant is now born at 35 weeks gestation. There was a suspicion of esophageal atresia and the postnatally the local hospital were unable to pass a nasogastric tube and they've contacted your registrar who has subsequently contacted you. Now it happens to be 8 or 9 o'clock in the evening. So at this stage, what other information would you like to know about the condition of the infant and when would you recommend the transfer of the infant? So... If the infant uh, remains well, is spontaneously ventilating in air, um, and they can't pass a nasogastric tube, we'd assume they would pass a replogal tube, which will drain secretions from the upper pouch. The initial x-rays would be informative in terms of understanding whether there was gas below the diaphragm to indicate that there was a distal fistula. Um, under those circumstances, we then want a clinical vector screen to be undertaken to ensure that the infant has a patent anus, has passed urine, and there are no obvious uh, loud murmurs or discrepancy in, in pulses to indicate uh, a significant cardiac anomaly. Um, I think it's still important that infants with a diagnosis of esophageal atresia are on the surgical site as soon as possible because there's always the issue of potential respiratory deterioration and uh, abdominal distension that would come from the gut being filled by the fistula uh, and the potential need for emergency operative intervention. So I wouldn't be keen for the infant to stay overnight. I think it should come to the surgical centre as soon as that can be arranged. Okay, so they arrive um, at the unit. Um, what pre-operative investigations would you request and why? 
Um, we'd mentioned earlier about a, a repeat of the chest x-ray because it's important that the replogal tube is actively pushed down at the time of the x-ray being taken to give a better indication of the length of the upper pouch because that has an impact on the rib space that you might choose in terms of your operative repair. Um, it's then important to, again, um, if that hasn't been done already, to complete the vector screen to understand what other, other operations might be required. Uh, and it would be our policy here for all infants to have a transthoracic echocardiogram to ensure that there isn't any intrinsic and significant intracardiac abnormality. Very rarely it can be that there is uh, a cardiac abnormality that's so severe that it, it can't be operated on and uh, that infant may be palliated. And once every couple of years we will see an infant who actually doesn't have any reconstruction. But it's also important that if the infant, for example, has something like tetralogy of fallow or something that may lead to a significant um, change in the intracardiac shunting that might lead the infant to become um, desaturated or unstable during an anaesthetic, then it's important that the anaesthetist is aware of what the potential reasons for that would be. Uh, that's obviously accentuated by the fact that the right lung will be depressed for most of the time of the reconstruction. So again, if there's instability, the anaesthetist needs to know what the possibilities for that are and how they might intervene to change that situation. Okay, and then and then sticking with that same topic, there's also a lot of discussion often about which side the aortic arch lies. Um, it, let's just assume that it happens to be a right-sided aortic arch. Would that alter your approach in terms of your operative management? Well, one of the clues that you can um, find to see if there's a left-sided arch, a normal-sided arch, is the aortic knuckle on the chest x-ray, so that the bump that one sees in the upper mediastinum on the left-hand side Transthoracic echo can usually pick up the position of the aorta, but it's not um, 100%. But if I believe that the aorta was on the right-hand side, it would still be my policy to operate from the right-hand side because I would still be dealing with familiar anatomy. I would know where the aorta was, and I would know that that would be in the field of generally where the upper pouch would be. Um, but I find that it's better for me than going into the left side of the chest, which is unfamiliar territory, trying to find structures which are easily more easily found from the right hand side and so i've come across circumstances where a surgeon knowing the right-sided arches there has gone into the left side not been able to identify structures and having come back to the right side anyway um, but it's one of those circumstances i think where if, if you're in relatively early in your consultant practice this is one of those key moments when you would need to contact a, a senior colleague who's familiar with such a scenario who can support you through that approach but generally speaking i think done better from the right Excellent. So um, you go ahead, this happens to be a left-sided arch, you go ahead and do the procedure through an open thoracotomy on the right side. Um, can you just run us through what are the key steps in the procedure and also do you perform a bronchoscopy? So dealing with the bronchoscopy first, um, it, it's not my policy to do a bronchoscopy at the start, although I recognise that it is many paediatric surgeons for you to do that. The purported benefits are to be able to understand whether there's an upper pouch fistula, and also to determine the position of the distal fistula in the trachea in terms of its um, access from the chest. The reason I don't do it is because that it, it's very easy to miss an upper pouch fistula, um, even with a skilled uh, bronchoscopist, just because of the, the size and length of the infant trachea. And actually, it's not going to make a material difference to what you do in the chest. But more importantly, I think it's a time when we'd be asking the anaesthetist to then extubate the child again, to then do the bronchoscopy and re-intubate and all of that has the potential to lose control of a stable situation and to suddenly get gaseous um, expansion of the stomach and then to lose control and find oneself having to crash into the chest when you didn't necessarily need to do that before. Um, so I, what I would do would be a rigid endoscopy just to confirm the diagnosis and to understand accurately the length of the upper pouch. 
And knowing the length of the upper pouch is an important fact that tells me which rib space to go in. So in a term infant, if the distance to the up, um, upper pouch is 10 centimeters or less from the gum margin, then I try and get into third space because that will make it easier to get to what could be a very short upper pouch in the thorax. Excellent. Um, and just in terms of the key landmarks that you'd want to identify when you do enter the chest, any tips from that point of view? I think it's possible to, to cite most of the thoracotomy posterior to the tip of the scapula to make it a very cosmetic procedure. It's some people's view to try and do this uh, as a, a small incision in the axilla, and I, I have no uh, necessary problems with that, although one has to be careful about um, how you access through the axilla to make sure that it's a transverse rather than a longitudinal incision. The old Dennis Brown incision that was a longitudinal incision through the um, axillary is quite a, a, a morbid incision in terms of the scarring it produces. Um, it's usually possible to minimise muscle cutting so most of the muscle can be separated rather than cut, which again minimises the risk of winging of the scapula. Um, in terms of actually going through the intercostal layer, I generally use um, bipolar forceps to do that. I find that it's a, a, an accurate and nice way um, to get directly in the middle of the rib space rather than going onto one side of the rib or the other, which I think again minimises the risks of the ribs um, sticking together in the postoperative recovery period. Um, when it comes down to getting onto the pleura, then again, I would use bipolar to pick off the muscle fibres to reveal the underlying pleura. When it comes to inserting the swab into that space to get the pleura to lift off for the extra pleural approach, it's very important that one doesn't direct the forcep directly down for fear of puncturing the pleura. It's much better to have the um, forceps such as the debicchi at a very shallow angle folding in the swab underneath the ribs on both sides uh, to then get the pleura to lift off. Okay, and if you're struggling to identify the fistula, any tips from that point of view? I think once you've got um, the full extrapleural approach and you've identified the azicus vein, it's it's most surgeons' preference to ligate the azicus vein, although I'm aware a couple of people more recently have suggested that preserving the azicus vein may help with venous drainage from the anastomosis, but I'm not so convinced myself. It's generally a good landmark to divide the azicus and know that there's a window just immediately beneath it, which is the place where one would look for the fistula. I guess the issue comes for a surgeon, particularly in the early part of your experience, when you look into that area and you can't see the fistula, but you know that there is a fistula there because there's gas below the diaphragm. And that can lead surgeons to then become a little bit uh, disorientated and start to look for structures that they assume could be. And I think that's when right and left membronchus and aorta are potentially uh, in danger of being traumatised because the surgeon's in a belief system that there must be a fistula there, but they can't find it. So it, it, it is, again, I think the second point during this operation where re one really must consider calling a colleague to help to locate where the fistula might be. And if you can't find it in that typical window below the azicus, it's usually because you've got a very distal fistula that's going into the uh, trachea at the point of the career, and it goes in at a very shallow angle such that you have to go much uh, more distal in the chest to find it rather than going deeper transversely in the chest. Okay. Um... And say you are able to get both the ends together and the procedure goes well. Um, is there any evidence about leaving a chest strain? Um, I think the extra plural approach is your um, the child without a chest strain. Because if there is leak, the extra plural approach will uh, localize that leak um, just around the anastomosis without it breaking into the chest and producing uh, a chronic empyema. 
I'm not aware of actual evidence uh, in terms of people who've either used a randomized trial, for example, to see whether that makes a difference uh, for the extra plural approach. I think the trans plural approach that you may have to use if you are trying to get onto a fistula quickly, or if you're doing it thoracoscopically, then it probably would be sensible to leave a drain for no more than 48 hours after that to drain any thoracic content. One has to bear in mind that if you're leaving a drain because you think it's going to give you an early indication of leak, then it usually doesn't do that. Um, the drain normally becomes encased within three or four days, and actually that's the point at which if the anastomosis is going to leak, it will leak. And almost all surgeons that I've worked with in my own clinical experience has been that if the channel develops a leak that's intrathoracic or, or intrapleural, that one needs to insert a second drain to drain away the pneumothorax and the fluid as a consequence. So your first drain you thought was helping, but actually it isn't. Okay. Um, and what would be your standard post-operative instructions for a patient who you think the procedure has gone well? It's not a particularly tight repair. So I would always use a trans-anastomotic tube, which is, to all intents and purposes, just an asogastric tube that goes into the stomach because that allows you to feed the infant from 72 hours. Um, you may not be comfortable about them feeding orally at that stage, but um, I know if the anastomosis is very straightforward in the infant's well, some surgeons would choose to do that, but you can certainly feed enterally with a tube at 72 hours. Um, and I would um, ask for the infant to um, remain ventilated for the transfer back to the intensive care unit, but on return to the intensive care unit, would then ask the um, anaesthetic, the ICU team to wean immediately towards extubation. Excellent. And would you perform a contrast study routinely prior to feeding? Uh, no, we don't. Um, and it's it's been the policy at this institution and that, that I've learned from my senior colleagues that it's, it's not necessary in the sense that if there is um, clinically significant leak, then it will become evident. If you do a contrast study in everybody, then you will see lots of um, radiological, non-clinically significant leaks. In other words, small outpouchings of of the contrast study that you see around the anastomosis, but actually that doesn't mean that there's a leak or that you should stop feeds essentially. So um, so actually it's, it's proved to be unnecessary in our experience here, but I wouldn't object to somebody doing it, particularly in the early part of their experience. I guess the understanding is just about those radiological but not clinically significant leaks and not over-treating the child as a consequence. Okay, and so for all your patients who've had surgery, do you commence them on antacid medication? Yes, I do, and this remains a controversial issue um, and one that was discussed recently at the inaugural meeting of the um, complex upper GI uh, meeting amongst paediatric surgeons in the UK. And I think there was enough equipoise around the room and enough support potentially for a randomised trial to look at that. In spite of that, at the moment, I would start children uh, with esophageal injuries are on anti-reflux medication because the esophagus is always congenitally short. The gastroesophageal junction is always a little bit in the chest. And so they are always um, prone to reflux occurring and the respiratory consequences. Whether or not the reflux itself has an impact on the uh, anastomosis and can cause stricture at the anastomosis again is controversial and the BAPS-CAS study from a couple of years ago suggested that there may not be an association with an increase in stricture related to reflux um, but nevertheless uh, because of the propensity to reflux and the respiratory complications I would commence anti-reflux medication at that stage and I would continue it up until the age of two and at that stage I would then investigate the child in, with impedance and also manometry here, although that may not be available to everybody, but certainly impedance or pH study and assess the level of reflux at that stage and the need to potentially continue the anti-reflux medication beyond that point. Okay, um, so let's go back a little bit and say if you do identify an early clinical leak, so within 48 to 72 hours, how would you manage that? 
So this is a form of management that I'd never seen in another centre until I came here to Great Ormond Street. But I've seen two children who developed early leak um, and it was the policy of my senior colleagues to take the child back to theatre early and identify and repair the leak. Uh, and I guess it wasn't until I'd actually seen that firsthand that I realised how relatively straightforward it is to go back into the chest at day three or four and how straightforward it was to identify the point of leak and to put usually no more than two or three stitches in to close it. And then one immediately stops this spiral that these children get into of chronic leak and empyema and difficulty feeding. Um, and it, it just stops that in, in both the children that I saw. So I, it was really when I saw that firsthand that I'm utterly convinced early identification of a leak in the first couple of days, you should bring your child back to theatre, identify where the leak is and repair it. Okay, so just moving away a little bit from those that have a fistula, if postnatally they were confirmed to have a pure esophageal atresia with no fistula, what would be your just overall approach towards it? And what would be your preferred method of a substitution if you weren't able to get it together? So that infant would, uh, we would take that infant to theatre, um, um, to perform a gastrostomy in the first instance so we've got access to the GI tract for feeding and um, through the original gastrotomy we would then try and perform an assessment of the gap and understanding what long gap is is difficult there are lots of different um, definitions of that phrase I think one of the best ones that I've heard was um, from Agostino Piero who would say that a long gap is basically a gap between the two ends of the esophagus that does not allow primary anastomosis. And I, I think that's a very pragmatic but a very useful way of looking at it rather than trying to relate it to distance between vertebrae. The way we would do the gap assessment would be to use a urethral sound through the gastrotomy. Often these infants are quite small anyway and trying to use endoscopy or other things to get into the distal esophagus is quite difficult. There is quite a, a, a technique to being able to use a urethral sound in the gastrotomy to ensure that it goes into the distal esophagus. Um, and that usually involves turning the angle of the urethral sound medially and allowing the tip to travel up the lesser curve into the esophagus. Because as soon as you get the tip of the urethral sound in the fundus of the stomach, it's very difficult to get back into the distal esophagus. So one tries to get the tip to travel up the lesser curve and it usually goes into the distal esophagus. From the top, we would use a urethral sound, so using two metallic structures, which are very easy to identify uh, radiologically, but also have enough um, robustness to be able to produce um, tension on the two structures to uh, really understand the distance between the two. I've come across one circumstance where in doing so, the two metallic structures overlapped. Um, and in fact, what I found on entering the chest for thoracotomy in that child was that there was an atretic fistula. And so there are reports of such a tretic fistula or a fistula being obstructed um, with, with thick secretions. So in fact, they really are a type C anatomy, although they appeared to be um, type A anatomy originally with a, with a long gap. So occasionally one needs to be prepared for the concept of the fact that the two ends might overlap and they, it may be possible to achieve a primary anastomosis. But for most children, it, that's not the case. And so it's about establishing the route to the gut for feeding through the gastrostomy and then doing nothing other than just supporting that child with nutritional support um, and then reassessing that gap at four to six weeks. Of course, in the group with um, long gaps of geolatrizy, we know that the incidence of upper pouch fistula is more common. And so at some stage, it, it's always prudent for those children, particularly to have some form of elective MLB. Now, whether you do it immediately at that stage, 
uh, is entirely up to you and what you have available to you. One's not as concerned in any way about the gut being descended because there's no access to the gut. Um, I generally prefer to do it when I, not at the original um, time, but uh, at a point later when I do my second gap assessment, because usually at that stage the infant's bigger, more robust, and you get a, a better view of the uh, trachea. Okay. And say after one or two gap assessments, you've come to the conclusion that it is not coming together. What would be your preferred organ for your esophageal substitution? So at Great Ormond Street, um, we use the stomach. And this was something that Lewis Spitz um, had a huge amount of experience in and has passed that technique on to his colleagues and to us as the new generation of surgeons here. Um, but I guess the question is when you would do that. And uh, Lewis would particularly say that it's difficult for the neonate to have the stomach in the chest in terms of the embarrassment of ventilation that it sometimes produces. So we generally want to leave the infant until they're around, um, let's say, nine to 12 months. For the majority of the time beforehand, the infant's going to have been liquid fed anyway. But really, one needs to maintain oral skills. So I think it's probably better to commit to a cervical esophagostomy that allows the infant to then sham feed. And if uh, you match the sham feeds to the time when food is going in, or nutrition is going into the stomach, then you have, have an infant who's programmed to understand the feeling of satiety and then to be able to feed accordingly. Uh, and I've come across many parents who are very, very good at following that process through because they know the potential benefits it will give the child in the longer term. Excellent. And then just lastly, um, any comments on what would you do for these children when they're 14, 15, 16, prior to them being transitioned across to adult care? more to do with their long-term outcomes. Is there anything particular you would advise? Well, the recent ESPGAN guidelines have looked at esophageal atresia in terms of an understanding that it's a lifelong condition and there are potential complications associated with it. And the one that most people have been concerned about is potential for esophageal malignancy because of um, changes in the lining of the esophagus, mostly caused by reflux. It's interesting that the, there was a series from Australia which um, saw an incidence of uh, carcinoma um, in uh, children with esophageal atresia, but actually it was a, a squamous carcinoma rather than adenocarcinoma. But nevertheless, I think that we know that because of the long-term issues of reflux, children do need to be transitioned effectively into adult practice. And so the policy that we're looking at adopting here at Great Ormond Street is um, surveillance, looking particularly at their... Um, feeding ability and being assessed by speech and language therapy in the first six months to a year, an assessment around about the age of two, which looks at their reflux um, level at that stage, um, potentially looking again around the end of the first decade of life, particularly if they've been a child who's continued to reflux, and this assessment would be endoscopy and biopsy. Particularly when children are transitioning in their teenage years, around 14 or 15, that's the time for a definitive endoscopic assessment of the esophageal mucosa with biopsy to ensure that they don't have Barrett's change. And if they do, they need to be transitioned to an adult gastroenterologist at that stage for further surveillance. If the esophageal lining is entirely healthy, then one could probably mitigate that um, gastroenterological surveillance until their third or fourth decade of life. The other thing I think it's important to do is to assess their respiratory health because I'm much more concerned about the respiratory health of children with esophageal atresia than I'm about their esophageal mucosa. So we would ask the respiratory team here to meet those children, do an assessment, do lung function testing, and again, determine whether they have an ongoing need for respiratory surveillance and support in the longer term. Fantastic. Thank you very much for your time today. Um, and we look forward to having you back on the series again in the future. Delighted. Thank you. Thank you.